You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, this question and answer is intended to be a little bit more personal, less uh, scientific, and less geared with the speaker's area of expertise, and more simply to kind of get to know the speaker, where he comes from, and uh, to have a little bit of uh, interaction with him. Hey, Josh, uh, somebody who runs the slides, can you do the something with the, the shades there? Because I'm noticing a couple people that the sun is right in their eyes. <laughs> Do we both look like we've got halos around our heads? <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Good. Thanks, Dave. All right. Uh, first up, are you married? Where are your wife and kids, and what do they do? Uh, yes, I'm married. My wife and dogs are in the trailer. <laughs> um, yes, I'm married. My wife and I have five children between us, and uh, they are, or they've all flown the nest. Okay, so um, Gemma is 32, she's still single, uh, works as a, in an animal rescue area, she's a zoologist, uh, and uh, works in an animal rescue and zoo uh, area in South Wales, Bridge End in South Wales. Um, Adam, uh, I started giving ages and now I've got to do sums in my head suddenly. All of a sudden. Adam is 29, he and his wife Abigail live in the Republic of Ireland in Waterford, um, where he's tent-making as they attempt to plant a church. And uh, so there are three of our grandchildren there, Um, Margaret, who's six, and Killian, who's three, and Caddock, who is not yet one. So uh, that's, uh, there we go, Margaret. Um, Not sure why they called her Margaret. There was a reason, I can't remember what the reason was now. Killian, I can remember. Killian is an Irish name. Caddock is a Welsh name. Adam was born in Wales. Uh, Jack, uh, my son Jack is 26. That's right. He's 26. He's single. Uh, runs a chain of pizza restaurants in South Wales. Um, if one of those goes down, all the rest fall. It's the domino effect. Okay. Chain, <laughs> chain of dominoes pizza. Um, Bethany, who is 24, she and her husband Josh live in Newport News in Virginia. Uh, Josh is a policeman there, formerly in the Navy, formerly in the U.S. Navy. Uh, so he's an American citizen. So uh, uh, actually, Adam's wife Abigail is an American citizen as well, but they live in Ireland. Uh, Josh and Beth live in uh, uh, Virginia, and they have one little boy who is 18 months old. So that's our fourth grandchild. And then we managed to get rid of our last one this year, (laughs) so we could become empty nesters. Joe is um, 20, and he has he has joined the U.S. Army. Uh, He tried to join the British Army actually two years ago. They wouldn't have him, so he joined the U.S. Army. (laughs) (laughs) So he's he's doing well there. That's good. How did you get saved? I was saved at the age of 15, and it's not a terribly spectacular salvation story, okay? Uh, So hold on to your seats. I'll try and make it more thrilling. Um, (laughs) I was brought up to go to church. My parents always went to church, to the Church of England. So uh, I was brought up. I sang in the choir. I played the organ. And um, by teenage years, it really had stopped meaning anything to me anymore, but I went along because I was a fairly obedient son, so uh, relatively, well, at least when they were watching me. And um, so that's what happened. However, round about when I was 15 years old, my parents had an argument with the vicar of that church, so they decided to leave the church. This was a bit radical. Being Anglicans, all they could think about was going to another Anglican church. But I don't know whether you know anything about the Church of England, but there are various different churches within the Church of England. They all look the same on the outside, ancient buildings, but inside, some of them are as liberal as anything. Some of them could even be mistaken for Catholic churches, and some of them are gospel-preaching evangelical churches. 
And so the new church that we went to, the next one down the road, just happened to be a gospel-preaching evangelical church. I heard the gospel. And within a very short space of time, I was saved. I know, and I don't know exactly what day I was saved, but I can tell you the sort of bounds either side. I know that on Christmas Day, um, 1976, I was not saved. And, you know, I had a, a, an amazing experience in that service, that uh, Christmas Eve midnight carol service, um, where um, I realized that I was not saved. Uh, that's, that's how the gospel affected me. Uh, I came out really quite upset from that service. <laughs> it was a rotten start to Christmas. and um, But I knew by Easter of 1977, I was saved because I'd heard the gospel enough. Sometime between those, I can remember going forward at an evening service when the gospels preached. I can't remember which service it was, but I did, and that's how I was saved. So not very spectacular, but it was basically due to the difference between two churches in the same denomination. Okay. And then you said you taught uh, high school, science high school? Yes, I did. For how long? It was just short of 20 years that I taught in uh, uh, what you would refer to as public schools. Um, they, they wouldn't be called public schools uh, in, in Britain. They'd be called comprehensive schools. So I spent um, 19 years. I taught in four different schools. First of all, in uh, the Manchester area, taught two schools. You know, first school, then I got a promotion. And then I moved to South Wales and taught. So I taught in Wales. Uh, Wales is a different country. Remember, not the same as England, but it's part of Britain. Uh, I taught in two schools in Wales, eventually becoming a head of science. For a short while... I left teaching in the year 1999. In um, 1990, I was part of a focus group that was advising the UK government on the introduction of the national curriculum in science education. And in public schools in Britain, what you would call public schools, the government schools in Britain, science is the most important uh, subject on the curriculum. It, it's 20% of the curriculum. There are three major compulsory subjects which have to be taken throughout um, normal high schooling from the ages of 11 to through 16. And they are uh, science, math, and English. And uh, the others are in sort of blocks of options. When you were teaching high school, science in high school, you were a Christian at the time. Yes. Were you a creationist? Yes. How did that go over? Were nope. you allowed to teach that creation, biblical yes. creationism, in the public yes. school? Uh, yes. I mean, I taught evolution as well. And I, actually, I think it's important to teach evolution. I don't believe evolution's true, but evolution is the view believed by most professional scientists. So I would, I would argue for teaching uh, evolution in, uh, in your homeschool curriculum and in uh, uh, Christian schools. I'm not saying teachers fight, far from it. In fact, I'm saying you should show them all the errors of it and teach the whole truth. But they need to know about it and they need to know about Charles Darwin. But I, I was able to teach pretty easily at that stage in uh, schools. They hadn't changed. I left teaching in 1999. It was the following year in the year 2000 that they got, uh, the British government at that time, which was led by um, Tony Blair, um, changed the law and mandated that evolution had to be taught as fact. So it's as, as late as that. But there is a slight difference, mind you. I, I tend to encourage, and I'll make no bones about this, if you talk to me privately, I'll tell you and I'll argue it from Scripture if necessary. Having been a public school teacher and... Having, you know, and I will still affirm those people who believe for before God that their mission is to teach in public schools. I'll just say this. I don't think your mission is to send your children to public schools. I really don't think so. My friend Ken Ham often says, you know, we don't, we know, uh, the Israelites never sent their children to the Philistines to be educated. And, um, it, it is important. So, um, you, there, there are those problems there. But I will say this about uh, British schools that's different from the public school system here. Britain has no concept of uh, separation of church and state. So there is no problem legally with a teacher who is a Christian telling their class that they are Christians and telling them why. No problem at all. Of course, there's no problem with a teacher telling their class that they're Muslims and uh, uh, why they're Muslims either. So, you know, it works you know, in every direction. I've had atheists accused me of wanting to not have evolution taught in the public schools. And I reply back, I, I, that's not true at all. I want more evolution taught in the public schools. I want, I want Denton and Behe and those guys. I want the 
the problems with evolution actually taught in the public school. Yes. The problem is the public school only teaches the theory and certain pieces of evidence and not all of the modern critiques of evolutionary biology that's yes. coming out. Yes. So what made you leave the public school system? Um, it wasn't actually a theological issue. There were a couple of issues. Um, there was a there were several things added together. So one thing I won't go fully into, which is that I was going through a personal crisis at that time, family crisis. Uh, so that was one issue. The second issue um, is that actually I was a bit fed up with teaching in public schools at that time. And here's the reason why. It's not that I didn't like teaching. Uh, everything I've done since has been teaching in a way. But... Um, what happened in British schools is that, you know, you find that you're good at teaching, so they promote you, and the new job that you have means less teaching to the classroom. You know, so that when I became an assistant head of science, I was removed from one lesson a week on the timetable, so that I could do some office work. When uh, I became a head of science, I only had two-thirds of a timetable. So the stuff that I was supposed to be good at and the reason why I was promoted, I was doing less of so that I could instead do paperwork, the very stuff that I hate doing, <laughs> and managing other teachers who, quite frankly, some of them were not up to scratch and it was almost impossible to sack them. And, uh, you know, I had a number of teachers in my department who were not pulling their weight, and I was having to sort of mop up the problems there. That was a problem. At the time, while I was head of science, the head teacher in the school uh, became ill and uh, had to go into the hospital, so the deputy head teacher became acting head teacher, and I became acting deputy head teacher. And then I only had half a timetable. So I got really... I realized there was nothing else I could do. I could... Um, I could go on and become a, an actual uh, deputy head teacher I wanted and do less teaching. And I could become a head teacher I wanted and do no teaching at all. Well, that horrified me. So I left teaching and I set up a business training business people in how to use ICT applications. And I did that for a while. Uh, there was a lot of work at that time, particularly in training people in ICT applications such as Microsoft Office and also in um, web development uh, techniques, which I uh, knew, knew a fair bit about. So I, I trained people in that. I did that for six years. Also speaking on the subject on the side on uh, creation because I had a bit of spare time to go around the country until I came to the notice of an organization called Answers in Genesis who asked me to join their ministry at, the Brit at their British office. And uh, so uh, that was six years running that business and then I went into full-time ministry in 2005. And then you came to the United States and worked with Answers in Genesis here? I came to the United States in 2011. No, I didn't work with Answers in Genesis uh, here. Uh, when I came to the United States, I worked with a ministry in Pensacola, Florida, called Creation Today, um, alongside uh, the, the president of Creation Today. is called Eric Hovind. So I worked alongside him uh, for three and a half years. And uh, then I was invited to go to Washington State and take over the uh, Mount St. Helens Creation Center. You've met Ken Ham. Most of us know who Ken Ham is. Yes. You've met Ken Ham. Tell us something interesting about Ken Ham that most people don't know. Um, what people don't know? Maybe people have heard him say that uh, you know he's convinced that the Bible has been mistranslated in Genesis 3, that when it says uh, that God cursed the ground with thorns and thistles, it actually says thorns and pickles, so we shouldn't be eating pickles, because uh, he hates dill pickles. Um, that's one thing. There's um, a photograph that I quite often use in my presentations when I'm talking about uh, the animal called Behemoth in Job chapter, uh, forgotten those, 39 or 40, somewhere around there. There's an animal called Behemoth. You look it up, and um, uh, Behemoth has a tail like a cedar tree. Well, some Bibles have a footnote saying, well, that must have been an elephant or a hippopotamus. Okay. So Ken Ham took a photograph of a hippopotamus, and we uh, we have that photograph. He uses it a lot, and because I worked with Anson Genesis, I was able to use it, so I sometimes use it too. It's not a real hippopotamus. Well, it, it was a real hippopotamus. It's a real dead one stuffed in a museum in London, a Museum of Natural History in uh, South Kensington in London. But when you look clo more closely at the photograph, and you won't see this in his presentations because he'll go past it quite quick, but when you stop and study that photograph, you'll notice that 
the photo is taken from the wrong side of the exhibit because you can see the hippopotamus and its tiny tail that clearly can't be the same as a behemoth. And then you see the rope behind which the public are supposed to be. And you realize that whoever took that photograph must have climbed over the rope behind the exhibit while the, while the guards were not looking. So I daren't tell you which particular Australian creation speaker did that. <laughs> and how did you get connected to the Mount St. Helens Creation Center? Well, that's strange, really. <laughs> I... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I don't remember a great deal about Mount St. Helens at the time because I lived in Britain. I was an 18-year-old university student at, at Nottingham University. I saw it on the news, but it didn't really mean anything to me because obviously it was something happening in a country a long way away, and people in Britain don't really take much attention to things that happen outside Britain. You may have known that. You know, it doesn't really happen. <laughs> I remember there being a, you know, a newspaper report, uh, earthquake in Chile, no Britons killed. Um, <laughs> sort of, uh, um, storms in the English Channel, Europe is completely isolated. You know, that, that sort of, um, that's the sort of news items you get in Britain. So, um, Anyway, by about 1984, I had left university and I joined a, a, a creation group, a creation ministry in um, uh, sort of creation society in Britain called the Biblical Creation Society. And uh, got quickly put, they wanted some young blood, and believe it or not, I was young once. I was young at that time, in my early 20s. And um, I got onto the board of the uh, of the ministry fairly quickly. They wanted me out there. And some uh, another member of the board had been over to the United States and seen Mount St. Helens, had uh, hiked up there along with Dr. Steve Austin, who's, who was the man who did most of the research, really, over, around the area, and came back with lots of um, things that you youngsters won't know anything about, called 35-millimeter slides, okay? Old folk remember those, okay? And he did a slideshow of Mount St. Helens, and basically was talking about certain things that happened at Mount St. Helens, which... I will tell you about tomorrow, uh, that clearly cannot be explained by evolutionary science, can only be explained in a biblical context. So that was fascinating. So it's 1984 was the first time I realized that Mount St. Helens eruption had something to say uh, biblically. And so I've been fascinated by it ever since, though I had no idea that I was ever going to be there. So when the founder of the Mount St. Helens Creation Center needed to retire, um, due to ill health, and they offered me the post. Uh, they'd found out, you know, that I, I was around. They'd searched around the United States, and obviously my wife and I were all, already living in the United States at that time. So we jumped at the chance, really, especially as it meant getting away from the hot, humid climate of Florida. I like the people of Florida, and I like the history there, but the climate, it's horrible. And I don't like the two-inch-long bugs either. Do you have citizenship? Are you a citizen? No, I'm a, I'm a UK citizen. Uh, I am what's known as a permanent legal resident. A lot of people say, well, why aren't you a citizen yet? As if it was a quick thing to do. And I can tell you, I am not eligible for citizenship until 2022. And I have spent a lot of money, very nearly six figures, on uh, on this process. But it is very, very difficult indeed for uh, British people who do not have relatives in the United States to actually get here and settle here. But I will be eligible in 2022, and I might become a citizen. I don't know yet. So what, made, what makes you want to come to the United States instead of staying in Britain? Are you, is there something about this country you like? Is it you realize I, I the do. American Revolution was not a mistake? <laughs> the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> that verse doesn't say anything about revolution. That's no, different. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I came here as a missionary to a pagan land. Um, no, um, I was asked to come. Um, I mean, I did sort of make myself available. I saw that the Creation Today ministry needed somebody else to speak and to uh, help them with a number of things and to provide a little bit of depth. Um, and, uh, uh, they needed somewhat another experienced. Um, it's not the, probably the time and place to go into some of the uh, issues that there may have been there in that ministry before I arrived, but there were issues, and they certainly needed to have somebody who um, had been in creation ministry for quite a while. But now so, you could go back, but you're choosing to I could to go here. back to Britain if I wanted to, but I love living here. 
Besides which, you know, my um, as I said, it, if we went back, some of our family would stay, would still be here, and some are not. You know, um, it's it's a very complicated. It's quite difficult at times to work out how to do this, but. I, I don't know. I, I personally don't have a desire to go back to the United States. I'm happy living back to the United Kingdom. I am very happy living here, and um, this is the country that I will remain in, as far as I know. Unless God t- takes me somewhere else, uh, this is where I will remain in this country. Um, as, as I said, you know, we've got two children here in the uh, United States and uh, a grandchild. And your ministry at the Mount St. Helens Creation Center in Castle Rock, can you tell us where Castle Rock is inside Washington, where it is at located in relation to Mount St. Helens, mm. why that city is significant? Castle Rock is the nearest um, incorporated city to Mount St. Helens, 52 miles west of Mount St. Helens. It's right on the uh, interstate I-5 at exit 49 in Washington State. So it's where the signs are to, to leave the uh, interstate to go to Mount St. Helens. Castle Rock is a very tiny city, population only 2,200. It's a very pretty little town, very, very uh, uh, lovely little place, quaint little town. And um, it makes a good base for people to start and then to jump off and to, to go and, uh, and visit things uh, close to the mountains. So I take people on car tours, uh, particularly from Castle Rock to the west side of the volcano, but also sometimes around the south side or around the east side. Um, the people who visit, are the, are the visitors to the center mostly Christians, mostly non-Christians, a mixture of both? Uh, most visitors to the center, there is a mixture of both, yeah, but most visitors to the center would be Christians. Not all of them would necessarily know, understand why they, why they should believe the Bible to be true all the way through. So it's you know our privilege to be able to explain that to them, to be able to show them films and uh, exhibits and things that will help them understand that. Yeah. Can you tell us about the, some of the tours that you give? Yeah, um, our main tour is on the west side of the volcano. So we will take people from the center and uh, take them in. Uh, people drive their own cars usually. And uh, so we'll stop at a number of places where I will interpret things. So I'll take them to places that were destroyed by the mud flows during the 1980 uh, um, uh, eruption. And then we'll take them closer to the volcano and they'll see the, where the land was completely devastated. And then they'll see the biological regrowth, how there's new forests that have grown in 40 years. In an area, by the way, that scientists were absolutely sure after the eruption, they said that, that they would never regrow for a thousand years. But I can take you into the middle of wood, uh, thick wooded areas and then stop and get people looking around and say, you know, how many centuries has this wood been here? And in fact, not only was the wood not there over 40 years ago, but even the ground they were standing on was not there either. You know, the ground was a lot, about 200 feet lower down. Uh, so it's fascinating to do that and to see how things have changed so rapidly in the area. It's a beautiful place to visit. And you have opportunities to do evangelism alongside the tours? Yes, uh, we do get visitors who are not saved, so uh, they come in. Also, quite often, other people get to see the tours and stop and join us, and I'm always happy with that. And yes, we do get the opportunity to share the gospel. And your local church, what church do you attend in Castle Rock? Uh, it's called Castle Rock Christian Church. And what it, what's that theological stripe? What camp are you part of? What camp am I part of? Yeah. Well, I'm not really part of any camp. I was saved in a an Anglican church. I um, went to university, joined a, what in Britain is called an independent Baptist church, but not the same as an independent Baptist church. It was a reformed Baptist church. By independence, simply meant it was not part of any denominational structure. I've been part of a Baptist Union of Great Britain church since then, and I've been part of a, a, a Pentecostal church, a couple of different Pentecostal churches. Um, I don't really know how you describe Castle Rock Christian Church. I know its history is that it was part of the Restoration Movement, and I also know it is no longer part of the Restoration Movement. So it doesn't teach, you know, historically many churches with the word Christian church after them preached uh, baptismal regeneration. They this. Our church certainly does not, and in fact, uh, is part of the reason why it left that grouping, but kept the name. A small church, big church. Um, it's probably large-ish for Washington State, which is that there's probably about 120 people there. And how do you serve in your local church? 
occasionally preach. I'm, uh, um, I play the piano and sing, part of the worship team, and um, the church supports the ministry that I do. Um, so. And what are your non-ministry-related hobbies and interests? Um, non-related hobbies and in, uh, non-ministry-related hobbies and interests. Um, I like walking. I like uh, music is my main um, non-ministry-related activity. I guess uh, I was originally a trained musician. Um, I was a trained concert pianist originally. That's what I was supposed to do. Um, but I got interested in science, so I couldn't find enough time to practice the piano. And uh, at the time, I was being told I had to practice the piano six hours a day, and I could only manage two hours a day. And so I realized I wasn't going to maintain that very high level. So I changed course, went into science, and then into education. But uh, probably music still. So I play some classical music still. Um, and uh, rock and jazz and blues. Have you always been a young earth creationist? No. What changed your mind? What do you mean by young earth creationist? I mean a creationist that believes in the earth is six to 10,000 years old, six literal 24-hour days, okay. as opposed to an old earth, Hugh Ross uh, type of a creationist or a theistic evolutionist. You see, I don't believe that the earth is young. I believe the earth is very, very old. I believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. And that's very old. You know? <laughs> if you go to Stonehenge in England and you see the notices that tell you that that, that, that uh, place was there 3,500 years ago, you don't look at that and say, oh, that's a young stone circle, isn't it? <laughs> in fact, the plaque on it, the government plaque, says it's an ancient monument. That's what they call it there. It's a registered ancient monument. So I don't believe that the Earth is young. It's 6,000 years old. By the way, I don't believe it's 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Where do you get that extra 4,000 years? It's not there in the Bible. I believe the Earth is 6,000 years old because that's what you can calculate from the Bible, which I will show you tomorrow. So some people call it young Earth because it's young compared to the millions of years that evolution believes. But I don't define my beliefs by an opposition to evolution. I define my beliefs by what the Bible teaches. So I'm a biblical creationist. No, I haven't always been a biblical creationist. So I, now that you've, uh, now that you've yeah. gotten to my question. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just something, you know, that I, I know it's a bunny trail, but it's, I, I think know, it's, it's an important one. Um, yeah, I was saved at the age of 15. I started reading Christian books. Not all of them necessarily very good, but I was very interested in Christian books. There was a Christian bookshop in the town of Ashton-Underline, which was the next town to where I lived. I often, people ask me where I'm from in England. I always tell them Manchester, okay? Actually, it's not strictly true. I wasn't, I didn't grow up in the middle of the city of Manchester. I grew up in a, a, a town about 10 miles to the east of Manchester, which you would never have heard of, called Staley Bridge. And the next town between Staley Bridge and Manchester is called Ashton-Underline. And I went into that town. There was a Christian bookshop and I was always going in there, picking up Christian books and, um, eventually, um, the manager offered me a Saturday job. So I was still in high school, so I got a Saturday job at this bookshop. And one day, I picked up a book which was called Evolution or Creation by a man called Professor Enoch, an Indian scientist who was a Christian. And uh, it explained, you know, it just horrified me. Here was a man who didn't believe in the theory of evolution and believed that what the Bible taught was true, that God had made the earth in six literal 24-hour days, and that um, the, the, the flood had really happened, and it was a worldwide flood. And I took this through to the manager in the back of the shop, uh, who was doing a stock take in the back of the shop. And I said, this man doesn't believe in the theory of evolution. He said, that's right, I don't either. And that just sort of freaked me out. So, <laughs> as you do in England, he sat me down with a cup of tea. and Because <laughs> uh, everything is done over a cup of tea. That's how you get everything organized there. And he explained it all. And... I wanted to be convinced. I had a lot of questions. Uh, fortunately, we had very few customers that day. And uh, by the time we finished that conversation and I'd left the shop that evening, I was convinced because I wanted to believe the Bible was true. I was in a church where they preached that the Bible was true. But he hadn't, the vicar hadn't preached on Genesis yet. And I found out when I spoke to him later that he believed that the Bible was true as well. You know, that, that, was, that was the case. And, uh, but I just hadn't come across such, such ideas before. 
uh, I was fascinated by it. Well, I have been, you know, very quickly I wrote an article which the vicar was kind enough to publish in the church magazine at that time. And I've been talking and writing on the subject of creation ever since, which is why I will tell people that I've been doing this for 40 years, because in a sense, I have. Your commentary on Genesis that you have on the table at the back, if there's any left, uh, I've got on my shelf 10 commentaries on Genesis. What makes yours unique? Um, From two different directions, really. The first direction is that I wanted to write a book about creation, okay? And a lot of people have written books on creation. But I also have a firm commitment in my sort of theological principles to believe that expository preaching and expository writing is is a good thing to do. Uh, And I wanted to present the truths about creation in an expository form. Uh, I didn't think anyone else had done that. All the other books about creation were not done like that. So that was the first angle of it. The second angle in uh, my writing, the recent sort of rewrite of it, I I published uh, the book called About Genesis, Volume 1. There will be three volumes eventually. And it's an easy-to-read book. I try and use short words, and it's easy to read. uh, But it will cover eventually the whole of Genesis. Well... Commentators on Genesis from the creationist side have usually only covered the first 11 chapters. Once you've got to the end of the Tower of Babel, they leave it to everyone else to commentate on the rest. You know, and a theistic evolutionist who's made a mistake on the first 11 chapters will therefore also make some mistakes on chapter 12 as well, even though we might agree with a lot of what they say, because they're telling you that Abraham was a real person. But there's still problems, and they don't fully explain properly What's significant about the fact that Abraham was 75 when he left the town of Haran and, and Sarah was 65? You can't understand that, you know, unless you believe the first 11 chapters to be true. So I wanted to write a commentary on the whole of Genesis from a creationist point of view. The last person to do that was Henry Morris, the late Dr. Henry Morris, who wrote a book called The Genesis Record, and that was published in 1976. So it's 44 years since anyone has published a creationist commentary on the whole of the book of Genesis. They've done parts. There's some very good books on the first 11 chapters. Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's commentary is probably the best one on the first 11 chapters. But I wanted something on the whole lot. So it will cover the whole lot eventually. And uh, nobody, no other creationist has done that since uh, for 44 years. That's why I wanted to do it. Can you give us your thoughts on... Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. <laughs> I try not to think about them. <laughs> I don't know what you want to say. Um, Prince Harry is a war hero, obviously, as you know. That is true. And I don't think everyone knows exactly everything that Prince Harry did in his, in his leadership role in, uh, with the British forces in Afghanistan. I think if he wasn't a member of the royal family, he would have been awarded a Victoria Cross. And I think it's that, they, you know, they felt they couldn't award that to someone so close to the throne. But it's quite clear he's a war hero. So he's very much to be admired. And he was probably the most popular member of the royal family until recently. And he now seems to have made himself more or less, not quite, but more or less the least popular member of the royal family. And I'm not quite sure why that is or why they've got themselves into the mess that they're in. But um, I don't know what else to say really on that. (laughs) Do you you follow the royal family at all? Occasionally. I mean, I've told you before that I, you know, that sometimes I'll joke about things and they're only half jokes. um, And... Britain has a lot of problems, but it also has a lot of good things going for it in its history, a history that you have inherited too, the English common law, which dates back to uh, King King Alfred the Great, um, who decided in his laws that the king would be under the law uh, and that there would be a council, which he called the Wotan, which has evolved into parliament, that would govern what the king does and the money and so on. And he, he put into common law the Ten Commandments and made it, made it a Christian basis for law. And that's the, the root of common law, English common law, which is also now American common law. Uh, and those are good things. So I follow thing, things that happen in Britain because 
there are certain good things that are not always right. Because obviously throughout history, there have been plenty of kings in Britain who have not been good. There have been, some of them have uh, been tyrants, not necessarily the ones you think of. In actual fact, I can only think of two kings who were actually tyrants. One was Henry VIII and one King George, was... Uh, king George III? No, King George III was not a tyrant. He was a, con- <laughs> he was a constitutional monarch. He had the wrong ideas and he made bad decisions. But the decision to start the war and the decision as well to sue for peace at the end had nothing to do with him because he had no authority or power to do it. It was all done by Parliament. So whoever you blame for uh, the oppressive tax laws, and they were oppressive tax laws, it was not, although King George III agreed with them, he didn't implement them. He signed them, yes, but it were, they were passed by Parliament, so you have to blame the MPs. And the fact that the war came to an end and there was a suit, suit for peace after uh, uh, the defeat at Yorktown, uh, again, was Parliament changing its mind. The two tyrannical kings are Henry VIII and Charles I. And you know what happened to Charles I. Tell us. Well, he had his head cut off. By Henry VIII? No, by Parliament. Oh. By Oliver Cromwell. When England briefly became a republic during that time. And, of course, the reason why they restored the monarchy uh, was because you look through your Bible and you can't find the word president, but you can find the word king. (laughs) (laughs) Since we have a little bit of extra time, I, I asked you about this yesterday, and I want you to educate an American audience. We use the terms Great Britain, England, Britain, United Kingdom. Are these all synonymous? No. Can you explain the difference between them? Yeah, I can. <laughs> the... Obviously, if you refer to um, the country by two letters, it's UK. I'm a citizen of the UK. I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom. That's where my citizenship is. Um, So what is the United Kingdom? Well, the United Kingdom comprises of four parts. And the the four parts of the United Kingdom, which are separate parts, with different histories, are England, Scotland... Wales, and Northern Ireland. And those are four separate parts. Would be like four states? A bit like four states, yeah. However, England, well, the population of Northern Ireland is about two million. The population of Wales is about three and a half million. The population of Scotland is about five and a half million. And the population of England is about 56 million. So you can see that England is much bigger, much bigger than the other three parts. But historically, the other three parts have their own histories. So that's why often people think of it it all being as England, because obviously the overwhelming majority is English. Um, That's that's the way it is. So um, historically, there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of England, well, three kingdoms, actually, the kingdom of England, the kingdom of Ireland, and the kingdom of Scotland. Wales was ruled by a prince. Their ruler, they're just called a prince. I don't know why, because in England, that's a sort of lesser body. But in Wales, their ruler was a prince. In about the early 13th century, Wales was conquered by England for various reasons. So Wales is a conquered territory. So all the laws in Wales are the same as in England. Okay, The English built a lot of castles in Wales. Um, and because of that conquest, and they're interesting to see today. But if you go to uh, those castles, which are own, which are operated by the Welsh government today, ironically, they look after them. Um, but um, they uh, they are actually a symbol of conquest. <laughs> uh, Edward the First having uh, defeated uh, Prince Llewellyn the Great in battle. Um, Scotland was a separate kingdom. But there was intermarriage between royal families in all sorts of countries in uh, in, in the continent, as well as on uh, the uh, as well as on the island of Britain. Um, so the whole island, you've got England to the north of that, you've got Scotland to the um, west of England, you've got Wales, and that whole island then is called Britain, or sometimes because of very grand egotistical reasons, Great Britain. Okay. <laughs> So Elizabeth I had no children. She was not married. She was the virgin queen. Okay, you've heard that, haven't you? So when she died, the nearest heir was actually King James VI of Scotland. He was actually related, and he was the nearest heir. 
So he was offered the throne of England, became King James I of England, and he was king of both countries, but the two countries were still not united. They were separate kingdoms with one head of state. Does that make sense? Difficult to visualize, but that's how it works. Um, until Scotland, uh, later on, you get in, where you're getting into the era of colonization and you've got all the um, um, British colonies in North America, the sort of early states, what eventually would become the early parts of the United States. Um, well, Scotland tried to get in on it as well. They formed a colony somewhere in what is now present-day Peru, but they made a mistake and they bankrupted the country entirely. So the par- Parliament in Scotland had no money, and the only thing they could think of doing was to ask the English to take them over. And they voluntarily um, lost their independence, voluntarily. So there was what was called the United Kingdom of England and Scotland which was eventually referred to as the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Now, that included Wales, but they didn't put it in the name because, don't forget, Wales was a conquered territory. Although Wales has more of a culture, actually, than Scotland does. Wales has its own language and more of a culture, and it's an interesting place. But that's there. So you had the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Then later on, um, you got the uh, Irish kingdom joining in as well when they had certain problems and so you've got the united kingdom of great britain and ireland and then you come to the 20th century to 1922 when ireland was offered independence but the six counties in the northeast of ireland refused independence and wanted to remain part of the united kingdom so they seceded from the irish state from the republic of ireland and so you have the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland whereas the rest of the island of Ireland is an independent, separate country called the Republic of Ireland. Okay, so uh, the Republic of Ireland is not part of Britain, and you won't last long if you go to Dublin and say, oh, I'm happy, I'm happy to be in Britain. <laughs> yeah, you've got to watch that. On the other hand, you won't last long if you go to certain parts of Belfast in Northern Ireland and say, oh, I ha- I'm happy to be in Ireland. I love you Irish people. But they'll tell you, no, we're British. <laughs> Does that make it clear? Yeah. Okay. So if you uh, if you f- you talk about the landmass, you're talking about Great Britain. Yeah, the landmass is Great Britain. If the nation is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And England is one nation of the United Kingdom. England is one nation of the United Kingdom. There are there are three nations and one province. Northern Ireland isn't really a nation; it's what they call a province. But Scotland, England, and Wales are. Three countries or three nations with their own cultures. Would they all be considered ruled by the English crown? They are all ruled by the English crown, yes. It's one, it's one nation, one international state, yeah. All right. Last question. What is the future for Paul Taylor and the Mount St. Helens Creation Center? The Mount St. Helens Creation Center, I think, has a great future ahead of it. Uh, we believe, uh, my wife Jerry and myself, believe that God's moving us to other things. So I am stepping down from the directorship of the Mount St. Helens Creation Center in uh, uh, July. And um, we are seeking to move to a new area of the country uh, to set up a new broadly based ministry, which will be a ministry of creation, apologetics, um, cultural apologetics, education, and uh, a number of biblical issues related to that. Excuse me. And uh, that ministry will be called Strong Tower Ministries. We have a website. We don't have a base yet because we're not quite sure where we're going to live. However, it's very, very likely that we will be living in northern Idaho somewhere. That is probably where we're going to move to. So we will probably be local to you and therefore may bump into you again. So you've been warned. <laughs> you, you should really look for churches because they're hard to find. Find good ones are. Do you know of any? <laughs> <laughs> we will, we'll put out our feelers. <laughs> so how long have you known that you're going to move? You didn't know this two years ago when I called you and asked you to come speak. I didn't know we were coming to Northern Idaho. I have felt... Uh, being pushed gently towards this sort of minister that we're looking at probably for over 10 years, but it's become clear and clear. It was part of the reason why we wanted to come to the United States and accepted that's part of the reason why we wanted to move away from a larger minister in Pensacola, but it's part, it's, it's the reason why we wanted to become an independent ministry where we believe we, you know, 
I will be under authority. We'll have to look for that. But, you know, I don't believe in people doing their own thing without being responsible to people. So we will find people to, um, to work with me and to, uh, to, uh, you know, a prayer team, a board, or whatever you want to call it, who will, uh, who will ha- I will be responsible to. But uh, nevertheless, we want to be responsible before God for things. So the actual idea of moving here to northern Idaho has really only been firmly in our minds since um, this, uh, this virus lockdown has caused us to think. I could go off on a bunny trail here, but I'll try and limit it very to very little as possible. But I do believe that the world has now changed. What's happened with the virus is a change in the world, not just in the United States, but it's a change in pretty much the west, other parts of the world too, but certainly in Western countries. And I can see it in my home country where things are actually pretty dreadful at the moment, in my opinion, pretty godless. Britain is in a very, very godless state, very much so. And I weep really for, for my home country. Uh, particularly since, you know, I've got two children still living there, in, in both in South Wales. Um, but the world has changed, and a lot of people are talking about, well, wait till we get back to normal. I would love to be proved wrong, okay? Uh, this is not necessarily gospel truth, and I don't think I can give you chapter and verse for it. It is my opinion, however, that things are not going back to normal. This is normal now. It's different. Yes, the immediate lockdown may end, but it could be reimposed at any moment and for any variety of reasons. We are now in a situation where things are different. They're not the same as they were in January. Prove me wrong. I'd be happy to be proved wrong. I really would. I rejoice if you can prove that I'm wrong and that everything is going to come out of this lovely and wonderful. But I believe we have to prepare for very, very difficult times ahead. And that's part of what I want the Strong Tower Ministry to do, to get Christians prepared for very, very difficult times and to have the biblical weapons that they need to be able to be prepared. Uh, seriously speaking about good churches, you are in a good church here. You know, I've got to know Jim, uh, very, very, your pastor, very, uh, you know, well over the last, uh, you know, conversations and him coming and, uh, I, I can endorse what, what's, what happens here. This is a Bible believing church. You know that not every church where there are Christian people is a Bible, a thoroughly Bible believing church. And even those that often are on paper are sometimes, shall we say, a bit weak. Some of them are. And Christians need to firm up and get into the word more. And I'm not the only person who's saying this. Pastor Jim will be telling this week by week by week, I know, and already has been doing for years while he's been pastor. He's been doing this week by week every year while he's been here, getting you into the word. But all Christians need to be into the word, and they need to be firm into the word. And there are difficult times ahead. That's what I believe. Now, I'm, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, so I'm not telling you that that's God's inspired word when I say that. It might not be, and you could prove me wrong. Please do. But that's what I believe. I think we are headed for dangerous persecution. We've got to be ready. When you say move to North Idaho, you're talking uh, somewhere between Coquilala and Bonners Ferry? Uh <laughs> <laughs> I suppose originally I'd thought of anywhere between Moscow and the Canadian border, but um, we like round here. We 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 um, we like what we see here. We've obviously come here because I'm speaking here, but we like what's around uh, here, and so we're uh, taking a bit of time over this weekend and into the middle of next week too to have a a good look round. And his wife God Jerry, willing, we will be here. His wife Jerry was doing some looking around for houses in Clark Fork today, and. I said, don't do Clark Fork. <laughs> yeah, but she ended up spending several hours in uh, Bonner Ferry and seemed to find some things there that uh, she said looked good. What What are you looking so, for quickly in land? You, well, if any of you've got land to sell, we're, <laughs> we're looking for perhaps one or two acres where that can be used for growing things, keeping animals, so uh, there'll be services ready. We can, if necessary, live for a while in our trailer on that land. 
but we want to use that as a base. We believe that places in Idaho will be more easily defended in difficult times than they would be in Washington State. We think Washington State is very dangerous indeed. It's a beautiful place where we live, but we think it's a dangerous place to be. And we want to be able to um, continue a ministry which will probably involve a lot of technology, a lot of making sure that we can get uh, messages out through um, through video, through the internet, and so on. Um, so our needs really are for land where there are services, where there's electricity, water, whether it's city water or well water, and uh, some way of dealing with uh, with um, sewage septic tank, that sort of thing, services available. And if those are, are there, that's the sort of thing we're looking for. We're not looking for vast expenses because we don't have the money for vast expenses, and we will need to start raising money when we've found somewhere. But that's what we're looking for, and that's the sort of ministry that we're doing, a place where people will be able to come and feel safe and learn uh, uh, some things and be able to go out empowered to wherever they, they are in the country or in the world to be able to take uh, um, stronger messages. We would like to be able to offer what we refer to as a prophet's chamber, you know, to give respite for ministry leaders and pastors who are absolutely burned out. You know, there are many pastors around who've been faithfully working in very difficult places that are burned out. We would like to be able to bring them in and be able to offer them some respite and uh, then be able to send them back invigorated and recharged to be able to um, get on with the battle of uh, fighting for the Lord. Um, so those are the sort of things we want, and that's the sort of land that we want. That we, I can see that the land would eventually have, um, you know, it would eventually have houses on it. It would eventually have uh, uh, places that we could grow things, keep animals. It would eventually have places where we can minister and uh, and, and, a, and where we can produce videos and audios and uh, and get the messages out. So if you know for a piece of land, you can help Paul out. Let him know while you're here this weekend. Tell us something encouraging, now that you've depressed us and discouraged us all. Tell us, tell us some positive news to finish up. Well, you look at the last pages. We know who wins. Okay, we have a great, great God. And there wouldn't be, you know, all the depressing things that I may have said about the worry of persecution and so on. I can only say that to you because there is hope. And we've seen that, you know, when I looked at the passages in Revelation that mirror the passages in Genesis. We have hope. Remember that God created a world that was perfect. He didn't create it by a process of evolution over millions of years. He made a world that was perfect. And, you know, the Bible tells us that one day he's going to recreate that world that is perfect. And many of you might have different opinions about how Jesus' return is going to come about. And I'm not going to go into that because, as you know, I don't talk on controversial subjects. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It is quite clearly true that Jesus is coming back in the flesh. And I think we should all believe that because that, the Bible definitely teaches that. Whatever other views you might have on other aspects, Jesus is coming back bodily in the flesh and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And those of us who have repented and put our trust in the Lord, our sins are washed away. There will be no more curse. There will be no more death. And we will live with the Lord forever. And what more encouragement could there be than that? Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.